Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you're new here, I just want to say thank you for giving us the one thing you can't get back, and that is your time. It is the non-renewable resource that you choose to allocate each and every day. I hope that we get to earn your attention over the next 60 to 90 minutes. And I really can't even express in in words today the the thoughts in my head that are going to come out in this interview. I've been looking forward to doing it for a long, 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 long time as evidenced by the first pre-interview I did with today's guest back, I think in 2008 or 19, 20 at the, at the, at the earliest or the latest. Um, Karim Baran has very recently had an outsized impact on Suncast and on my life. But as far back as 2012, 13, when I was at Trina Solar, he and I first got to know each other. Uh, those of us who know the story know that I had kind of a chip on my shoulder because he uh, didn't really like like my ideas. And I uh, always wondered, like, who is this guy, Karen Baran, that's one of the co-founders of Civic Solar? We're going to dig into who is this guy today. And trust me, this is a journey that you're going to want to journey through with me. You're going to hear from a man who started uh, one of the first social media websites in Europe that at a specific period in time was bigger than Facebook, started three months before Facebook and had a successful exit in that company. As I mentioned, co-founder of Civic Solar, one of the most, uh, in my opinion, one of the most transformational companies in the solar industry simply by approach. And CED Green Tech thought so, which is why they bought him. He's got a lot of fun things that he's working on. We're going to dig into those as we always do here on Suncast. And if you like this kind of conversation, you're going to want to hit that subscribe button. And I'd love it if you, after listening all the way through and agreeing with me that this is content you need every week, if you just leave us a rating and review enthusiastically supporting us so that others can find us in the podcast player that they choose to to look on. Sometimes it's Spotify or or Apple Podcasts, but wherever you are, if you just subscribe and rate and review, that helps others find us. That's the only reason that I ask. Um, other than that, I want to get down to business. Let's jump into it. This is another tactical, practical, deep conversation with a subject matter expert who I've come to love, know, trust, and enjoy his company, Karen Baran, here on Suncast. Well, Karen, we have so much to talk about. I'm going to say from the beginning here that this is likely a part one. Who knows how many parts there will be with you, Karen, but you and I have had uh, more hours than I can count, although many of them have been recorded and will probably be published at some at some point in the future. But you've become an outsized uh, influencer in my life, and I'm glad that you finally agree that we can share a bit about who you are and what you do with the Suncast world. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. Thank you for having me here. It's been a long time coming, and I'm very happy to be doing yeah. this with you. Do, do you remember the calls of like, 
young hubristic Nico from Sun, from uh, Trina Solar trying to convince Karim and the civic team of how like I wanted you guys to be a part of uh, this ecosystem that we wanted to build within Trina. And and I'm curious, what were your thoughts back then of this like this young whippersnapper at Trina? Well, the my fir- my first and continuing impression of you has always been your your vivacious and 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 really lovable personality. <laughs> so whatever impression or memories you have of uh, me not being interested in what you have to say has nothing to do with you. <laughs> and it probably um, had to do with, uh, and I, I honestly, I, I don't even remember the details, but all, all I remember yeah. is we didn't really sell a ton of Trina for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I, th- I think maybe back then Trina wasn't even that big on uh, distribution because no, if I remember correctly, you guys, you, you, you guys had huge deals with Solar City, if I remember correctly. Right. And, you know, That's you right. really went to the biggest, biggest players in the industry. Yeah. And our focus was all, all about empowering the, um, the, the smaller players, the, the long, long tail. tail. Yeah. The long mm-hmm. tail. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have been kicking off Suncast lately with uh, with a, an inspiring quote. As you well know, I am a quote collector. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I ever did have a physical office with a team, I would, as I was inspired by Millican Corporation years ago, do the same. I'd have a hall of quotes where I would literally just post the, I mean, I probably have thousands of quotes that I've collected in an Evernote note. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them I've gone and found video or like uh, digital memes of those quotes so that I could plaster them on my background. You've seen it on my computer. And so I've started each episode lately with simply the uh, the quote that is on my background at the moment that the, that the episode starts. So I'm going to go and then you go with a quote that has similarly in some way inspired you. Uh, so the quote of the day today is, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody, mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Bill Cosby and many others uh, get the credit for that one. And uh, I would say that this is the single hardest lesson I've had to face in my life. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> as an entrepreneur, everybody. as a person, as a pleaser, yeah. as a performer, mm-hmm. I try to please everybody. I try yeah. to show up for everybody. I try yeah. to address everybody's concerns. I try to answer every call. Don't answer every email, as you, as you well know. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how about for you, Karim? I'll, I will not leave room for you to opine because you know too much about me. But yeah. well, uh, I'll, how about you? What quote uh, would you bring into the conversation? Just to say, I, I, I've, I've been guilty of the same, same, uh, same behavior. And yeah. and uh, yeah, as I was preparing or thinking about today's uh, interview earlier this morning when I was driving my son somewhere, I, uh, I this quote popped into my head, which I think is Inc. Magazine's founder's quote. He said, uh, entrepreneurs are the artists of the business world. Because I was kind of thinking about how do I really explain what I'm doing now? Because I'm not, like my my current activity activities don't fit into a single, single uh, traditional definition. So I was thinking, yeah, I'm a little bit like an artist weaving and connecting dots in many different uh, areas it's still mostly around the uh, the solar industry uh, yeah. but yeah that's the quote that comes up to my mind if i could offer yeah. a second one related to what you said my second most favorite quote that i usually go to and i 
talk a lot about this with my 16-year-old son these days, is less is more, mm. and uh, which is kind of um, another yeah. favorite quote. But yeah. Well, anyone who listens to Suncast recognizes that I have not yet internalize the concept of less is more. We often have <laughs> 60 plus minute interviews, but trust me, we're trying with micro content and figuring out how to actually distill it down to the, the essential essence, the essential elements. And by the way, the, that mm-hmm. artist quote and the, and the less is more are kind of in contra- contradiction to each other and that, mm. that balance each other. Because I, I think about like, you know, how would my career have evolved if I had stayed in a traditional corporate role mm-hmm. which is like getting really good at one single function whereas w- what i do now is totally almost diametrically opposite of that um yeah but it, but i'm guilty of doing too many things as as you said about yourself too and so how to balance that um that focus create value but still have joy because i think most of us are not really meant to fit in a uh, you know, like that role that I think about in that Charlie Chaplin black and white movie, I think it's called Modern Times, where the guy's just doing the same repetitive task all day long. Yeah, And, you know, there's something to be said for that, too. If you do that for 10,000 hours, you'll become an expert in one thing, and you'll probably be the best person at that. But also doing many different things brings that um, uniqueness as well. So, Well, you know, if we think about entrepreneurs as artists of the business world, there is a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And, um, you know, even t- Tim Ferriss famously uh, built the four hour work week on the concept of the muse. He used a very artistic term mm-hmm. to describe the process of building something that uh, itself gives back to you and frees you from the, the necessity to be so concerned about the outcome. A lot of artists mm-hmm. um, feel like they are, um, not so much intentionally, but um, I'll say spiritually channeling the art, they're channeling the activity. And that's what I get from a lot of entrepreneurs when I speak with them is um, you've got a general sense of direction. It's kind of like you're in the yeah. you're in the woods and you know there's something on the other side of them and maybe you've got a compass, but you also are following your gut and intuition. Um, sure. And I have learned so much from the conversations I've had with you around um, around being intentional about the art, but listening to, uh, to the gut. Where are you currently seeing in your personal life? You know, typically I have a guest on who is actively building a business that frankly, most people already know about, um, or will soon know a lot about because they're already in the public eye. You've built and sold multiple companies. I want to talk about those. Um, Mm -hmm. But you are also actively investing in my life and in many others as entrepreneurs. Um, can you talk a bit about how you are expressing in that muse? How is that uh, sort of experience of being an entrepreneur expressing itself in the business world, fleshing itself for you right now? Hmm. I would say actually the way it's playing out is really not that different than I, I kind of um, had a plan for mm-hmm. even when I was – literally 27 years old, 28 years old. I remember it was 1999 when I had first moved to the Bay Area working for a large 
one of the at the time it was the largest uh, CRM co- uh, software company called Siebel Systems, and I had a whole plan in my mind about you know okay I'm going to work for this next software company. I had worked for a number of other software companies at the time. I had gotten my MBA, and I I kind of had a plan saying. Uh, to myself, okay, I'm going to work at this company, get my green card, save up some money, start one company, and then I'm going to do another one. I kind of had a plan to do two startups. And after that, I, I want to mostly share my knowledge and, and, and share my learnings yeah. and teach others and, and just have fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and still continue to work till late years of my life, which I enjoy a lot. Work, I enjoy working a lot. And so I'm kind of at a place where I have built two companies and sold mm-hmm. uh, sold them uh, and or contributed to building. I wouldn't say I did them alone. I it's definitely fine. Had, we'll get into the, the I, nitpicking I, in a minute. I had a lot of um, very valuable co-founders who contributed more than me in many ways. Um, and, you know, I've become a... I also early on started reading about investing and I didn't really actively invest so much until my first exit, but I've become a, I've become an investor or investor minded person. Um, and, you know, and I enjoy um, analyzing companies and investing in them. So I've been um, doing that for uh, over a decade and a half. And I, inve- I enjoy investing in uh, public markets as well as uh, early stage, uh, mostly tech startups so uh, that has become a big part of my um, journey. And, and starting about six, seven years ago, I guess with uh, mid, mid-life, uh, I have uh, started thinking about other aspects of life as well. And I've, I've been uh, enjoying uh, growth in you know, other areas than just business as well. And, yeah. um, and one of that, the way it manifests itself is I actually look at the entrepreneurial process as a human psychological process. There's usually a lot behind that. Like kind of use, like you said, I think there's a, there's a spiritual force of creativity that people want to, uh, realize or manifest into their lives. Um, sometimes there are some pains associated with, with that as well. So I've been thinking a lot about like what has made me uh, choose the paths and do the things that I have done. So in that aspect, I actually enjoy um, acting as a coach or a, or a advisor or a teacher, someone who, someone you can safely talk to or people can safely talk to. But I also don't, just want to be a coach i actually um i like still the process of building things i like to get into the kpis of the business and you know strategic aspects uh yeah you definitely still have some uh some gas in the tank so to speak in terms of your uh operation uh operation minded entrepreneurial activity and um uh, and you do i think put that to work in a lot of meaningful ways is there a core thesis that you would enunciate that you can enunciate around what your work post civic solar looks like right now? I would, I would say, um, that core, uh, thesis or that core thread is common actually, uh, even before civic solar, um, 
and during Civic Solar and, and what I'm doing now, um, mm-hmm. most of my activities have been really around not explicitly attacking concentrated power, but seeing the trends in the world that like th- that empower the long tail. Um, and that was the case at Civic Solar. And that was the case in the case of building a social network, giving mm-hmm. power to express and connect to individuals. And it is also, it is also what is um, at the forefront of Enki, uh, Enki Solar Investments uh, thesis okay. and activities right now. So I heard you say give power to express and connect mm-hmm. to individuals which suggests that it's already in the hands of, let's say, corporate um, or or more centralized. So Centralized built- institutions, centralized mm-hmm. uh, um, systems that have yeah. been outdated, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned Anki. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, first came across the name Anki when listening to um, Snow Crash. the book that... Yeah, exactly. Listening to the book that introduces the term metaverse into the world, a book called Snow Crash, which I've talked about on Suncast. It was in my top 10 books recommended for 2022 for folks who who watched or listened. For those uninitiated, talk a bit about the importance for you of of Anki as as an entity, a concept, and how that came to be the name of the Anki Solar Fund, which we'll talk about in, um, in a moment as well. I honestly don't remember exactly how the Enki name popped into my world. And this all happened in the last three, four years as I was trying to figure out a name to name a a brand to pick for my investing activities. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I came across this uh, Mesopotamian myth of these two brothers, Enki and Enlil, um, who are the sons of a god in in this myth and in in this Mesopotamian myth, they're extraterrestrial gods that landed on Earth to mine the Earth for for gold, and then um, they essentially engineered or genetically engineered humans to do the hard work of mining and use them as slaves. Um, so goes the myth, and there were these two brothers. Uh, the sons of uh, another, the more powerful god. One of them was Enlil, uh, who wanted to keep humans in the dark, uneducated, and uh, not empowered, and continue to use them as slaves. And mm-hmm. Enki, the other brother, arg- the champion for humans, um, argued for um, sharing all the godly knowledge and the wisdom that um, these gods had with the humans, mm. thinking that if we share them with, if, if we share this knowledge with them, they will be as capable as us and we will have m- much more, um, much more resources and much, m- much vaster capabilities as, as a, as a society. And, and so this uh, Enki Enlil, um, conflict and the two brothers uh, obviously didn't get along, and that conflict is uh, present in every, um, I think, in every person's um, psyche: uh, when to share, when not to share, how much to share. And this is something that um, I've thought a lot about, um, probably because of the circumstances that I, I grew up in, uh, mm. in 
in Istanbul, Turkey, where I spent my first 17 years of my life. I've asked you this question many times in different ways. And you usually are very consistent with the storytelling. And that's the first time I've heard you tell that story. That's the first time mm. I've heard mm -hmm. you tell that story that way. And that is not to say that you haven't told me that story that way. I've probably been taking notes or thinking about something else. Mm. For, for Suncast fans who perhaps are watching this on YouTube, I stepped back away from the microphone, like had a moment because so many of the things that we won't even talk about on this interview just collided with one another in my head about what we are trying to accomplish in the world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The idea that some of us, and I'm going to put like in air quotes, some of us hold back knowledge and others of us willingly advocate for the sharing of knowledge is at the core of what I built Suncast around, right? If you've listened carefully to the, inter to the intro, it says we pull back the veil mm -hmm. and the veil in biblical times. It's a very intentional term, right? I say we pull back the veil because in biblical times, the only people that were allowed to go behind the veil where the image of God and the spirit of God was able to exist and were able to interact with the spiritual realm and the most high were the priests and a very small subset of society were privileged enough to get true wisdom. Right. Mm -hmm. And I spent the first 10 years of my career in the solar industry standing on one side of the veil and nobody would pull it back. And no matter how high I climbed to Connergy and Trina and everywhere else, I found one or two mentors who were willing to pull me into a, a small room and say, I'm going to teach you something that nobody else is going to teach you because this is considered a secret black box. And it's not just the solar industry that does this. It's every freaking industry, candidly, because there are so many of us who are afraid to share what we've learned for fear that it will be used against us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, by competitors, um, by, by lots of, like in, in many, in many areas. So yeah. bear with us here, please, because this really is meaningful to you. Uh, if you've made it this far in this conversation, it is because something resonated in your heart that we are already plucking. Karam is on a mission that is a different sort of mission than building uh, a module or a tracker or distribution business. Um, and the reason that he's on the show today is to pull back the veil a little bit, maybe one that you've willingly allowed to fall before your own eyes um, about how you think about the knowledge and wisdom that you hold. So one of the earliest businesses that Karam started was this business, uh, Yonja. And it's one of the first social network businesses. We mentioned that, um, you know, I think it's, I think we should go back further than that. You started to unpack this so let's go back further. The first 17 years of your life were in Istanbul, Turkey, mm -hmm. but you are not a normal human being. Explain to me why that is true. <laughs> uh, you are normal in lots of different ways, but you weren't born into the kind of society that mm. most of us were. And you've had to spend a lot of time coming to terms with that. So yeah. what does that mean for the, for the listener who knows nothing about you? I always thought I had a normal, normal childhood of course, of growing course, up. Everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> and only thinking through uh, some of those things in the last uh, six, six or seven years, I've kind of realized, wow, you know, it was unique in, in some ways. And I think what made it most unique was because, 
you know, by American standards, I, I, it was probably a upper middle class type of existence that I that I lived in uh, in Istanbul, Turkey. But of course, by Turkish standards, that was definitely upper class, or even you know, I I would not even call it one percent. It was probably point one percent or point zero one percent type existence. A friend of mine that would describe like typical Latin American countries, he would say, you're either a maid or you have maids, or there's like, a, you know, probably a thousand to two thousand families that run the country. And and Turkey wasn't really that far away from that reality um, 50 years ago or 40, 40 years ago, 35 years ago when I was growing up. And it has become, uh, you know, more advanced, more capitalistic in many ways. But many of the people that I grew up around, it was uh, a lot of family businesses, a lot of mm-hmm. codependency type uh, relationships be- between the, it was like a <laughs> mini succession <laughs> type uh, yeah. setup. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you know the, movie, the uh, HBO series. So it, yeah. it was just uh, a lot of that. And, you know, a lot of these uh, wealthy, powerful families were either um, directly friends or one rung, like, you know, one degree of connection away. And, you know, observing a lot of that um, around me, I just, you know, I would see the vast gaps of power, income, op- opportunity, wealth, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, on the one hand, I would feel fortunate. On the other hand, whenever I traveled west, whether it was for vacation with my parents or for uh, uh, really mostly vacation for my parents, I didn't really feel that in the U.S. And that's probably why I ended up in the U.S. Like in Europe, I would feel um, discriminated against, you know, just even entering the, a country like Switzerland or France or uh, Germany with a Turkish yeah. passport. I, <laughs> I felt like, hey. It's not a passport. It's a stopport. <laughs> Everyone else is passing through the uh-huh. passport control, and you are asked a dozen questions: Why you're coming to this country, and what is your purpose? Mm-hmm. What you know? How dare you <laughs> come and um, you know explore these lands? I, I kind of right. felt a little. I got a little bit of the, I would say, the brown person uh, treatment. And so, like, on the one hand, I would feel very um, kind of. Fortunate. On the other hand, you know, I, I would feel discriminated against, and um, so just those uh, kind of uh, experiences, I would say, made me more sensitive to how um, most people, I would think, like me, wanted more equality around them. Like it didn't really feel too good to have too much more than others. At least for me, it didn't. Yeah. And. Mainly, that's probably why I always yearn for a more, more norm, more normal life. Life, uh, and uh, and I, I think I found that when I came to college in the U.S. Mostly, um, and I, I on purpose. A lot of the international students pick the coasts. Many of them pick Boston, and I did have some options to go to a college in Boston. But I on purpose picked Chicago and went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And really like the Midwestern culture and had a great experience there. And, and thereafter right. spent most, most of my life uh, in the U.S. Living a more normal life in some ways. I don't mean to make light of um, 
the experience that you shared, which was really beautiful around feeling other. Um, I had a recent conversation with uh, Devin Hampton um, from Utility API about um, you know being the other in the room, often the only mm-hmm. person of color um, that's discriminated against. Um, what came to my mind when you said um, the Swiss stopping you at the border as a child mm-hmm. um, is that many people in Europe would have stopped you because they are had they still had a fresh memory of the Ottoman Empire that didn't end until the 20th century, <laughs> right? So um, I know that's I know that's callous, um, but it's what came to mind. I thought I'd share right. it. Um, I don't know if that makes me sound any uh, any, any I, smarter, but I don't know. Um, I, I don't think I don't think most Turks really. I don't actually, yeah, there's always identify that, with that, it. That no, there's definitely that uh, Ottoman history. How much of uh, mm. that is uh, the identification of the modern Turkish population? But uh, yeah, yeah, there's obviously there's been uh, big divides uh, between uh, the Western Christian European nations and yeah, for a long time the one of the most mar- powerful Muslim empires. Uh, you right, know, that there's that division as well, and yeah, yeah, those are because other disconnectedness do. in 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 the universe yeah. that that yeah. affects everyone. I, I point to you because you've you've yeah. been a part of two important empires. <laughs> like many would say that the U.S. is an empire, <laughs> in, the, in the world, yeah. and then uh, that's uh, I think that's unarguable. Uh, it is, and uh, all empires fade. Yeah. Um, but. Um, but I wanted to, I just want to set the stage here, talk a bit about um, sort of growing up in Turkey before we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about Robert College. Mm. Yeah, that is the uh, middle and high school that I went to. It's called Robert College of Istanbul. Uh, it's actually started as a uh, college for boys in the 18, about 150 plus years ago as one of, the, I think it is the longest uh, or it's the oldest American uh, college standing in its original grounds outside of the U.S. Uh, you know, in the colonial era, started to wow. uh, educate the kids of the uh, influential families in the region. Mm-hmm. And by the time um, I was a kid, oh, well, I, I actually, and probably another, I, I don't exactly remember when, but in the early 1900s, they, they started a a girls' campus, just a couple of miles down the road from the boys' campus. And in the 70s, I believe, at the girls' campus, it, the, the college became co-ed, and they turned the boys' campus to a university, a co-ed university, and the girls' campus became a middle, uh, um, co-ed middle and high school for um, mostly Turkish kids. And the education system in Turkey is such that it's a little bit like in India, where you take these... Uh, you know, standardized tests like SAT, um, and that determines what schools you go to. So it's very meritocratic in some sense, and not so fair in others because good test takers are or in a position of an advantage. And so, I remember being in fourth grade and fifth grade and being tutored every single week to prepare for this one exam. And the top hundred or so kids get to go to this school out of uh, mm. my peer. Cl- group of a million kids. I mean, not every wow. family uh, makes their kid apply and only certain families can afford tutors. Um, so there's obviously a, a little skew. Uh, it's a little skewed because of that in terms of uh, soci- sociodemographic uh, mix. But it is 
um, a school that attracts a lot of super bright kids um, from all mm-hmm. all backgrounds. Um, yeah. I was a great, I was a good test taker. Um, I did really well under pressure. So, and I was kind of mathematically oriented um, most of my life. So, I did well and I got in, and it was really a great experience. And that that opened up, you know, the opportunity to come to the West for college and, and many other things. And, you know, it was kind of a first step in becoming a world citizen, which is not an opportunity that everybody gets in this life, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, um, around 1904, it, the school had about uh, 300 students boarding for about 200 of them. Uh, it was founded by an American philanthropist uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, I'm going to link to the Wikipedia page that I read around it, but also um, it is... Um, they accept around 200 students a year. And as you pointed out, you have to take a test. Uh, they accept students who've scored in the 0. 0.0, the 0.2 percentile in the nationwide exam. Just to put into perspective how elite the school is um, academically, it's it's like Exeter or Robert Louis Stevenson for people who understand like U.S. boarding schools. Cool. Yeah. So I wanted to set the stage because it also distinctly as an entrepreneur impacted um, because it's true, you are the sum of the people you surround yourself with, right? Mm-hmm. You were surrounded at a young age in this school with folks who were handpicked for their education and for their and for their um, and for their family pedigree, I would say. And as a result, um, while you came from a middle to upper income family, you were able to get the experience and the connection and the network of folks that came from, I'd say, old money. And people who also are exceedingly smart. I mean, the kinds of people who we in the U.S. acknowledge are like the geniuses that went to the governor's school that scored 1600 on the SAT on a Saturday after, you know, doing, you know, just they just kind of showed up and scored the the test because they didn't have to try hard. Um, And they went to Exeter or they went to Harvard um, because that was the natural procession for smart people. I think I'm telling all of this and I know that this makes Karim uncomfortable, but it's important that we. Um, I kind of looked at Karim through this lens and I first met him like, oh, like privileged European guy that invested in civic and considers himself a co-founder and all this stuff, right? Like I had this, well, who is this guy? But I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to unpack this for you because I think it's really important to understand not everything is, uh, on the surface uh, is, is underneath what it looks like on the surface. And it is true that people come from different backgrounds and can leverage those backgrounds to get what they want. Um, and then we're going to, and, and it all comes back to uh, at the end of the day, what do we do with what we've acquired? What do we do with the knowledge and even the wealth that we've acquired? Um, so with that in mind, um, I'm going to ask you another tough question. Mm-hmm. And this is a typical one, but you got to be prepared for it as, as I'm sure you are. What was conversation like for you around the table when you were a child? I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Both my parents uh, came from entrepreneurial families, and they actually worked together building a fashion business. So a lot of my childhood uh, family experiences were around the family business. And um, and one unique aspect, most of my... uh, not most, but a, a good portion of my friends were uh, families were also entrepreneurial or owned their own businesses, or or many of them were also like high level executives at at big important businesses. So business was always 
a part of the uh, life, I, I would say. Um, mm. One unique thing about my family was that my neither one of my parents took over their family or continued their own family business, but they, uh, my mother actually started our family business and it was a, a fashion uh, business or it was a clothing business for uh, women. And, uh, and so a lot of uh, the activity was around that. And uh, yeah, so a lot of the conversations around the dinner table were also about that and, uh, you know, yeah. very much related to business. But, you know, we also had a uh, pretty uh, good-sized social um, community and, you know, would also talk about what's going on with our friends and relatives mm. and all of that. Do you feel there were any expectations? Oh, yeah. Un unspoken, but yes, definitely, I would say. Um, or, or even spoken, <laughs> but uh, um, not too expl explicitly. Um, but yeah, it as a, I guess as a as a male child, even though I, <laughs> my mother was an entrepreneur, um, uh, you know, there was always an expectation. Like in, you would see this in Indian and you know Asian immigrant families. They expect you to be a doctor or engineer or uh, you know s something in the STEM field. Uh, there was a, a little bit of that, but there was also a little bit of like expectation of starting something, doing something with your resources, building a business, taking care of family, yeah. creating value for others, and all of all of that. Yeah, for sure. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. <laughs> but that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Is there anything that you feel from your childhood particularly explains well um, or sums up, sort of captures why you ultimately ended up doing the things that you do? Something that you've, through the last five or six, seven years of, of real introspection, come up with as um, that anchor sort of that drove you to the U S to study and into entrepreneurship 
Um, is there any way that you've thought through how to explain that to, to your son or even to yourself? One of my other yeah. favorite quotes is, uh, uh, hold on, I have it here. Um, okay. The greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. What were your mm. parents' unlived lives, says Carl Jung. So my mother's unlived life was she came from a well-to-do family. Many of her female friends in the 60s traveled to Europe to study. And her dad did not support that and did not, even though he had the means to send her to Europe for college, he said, you're a woman, what, what are you going to go study abroad for? Why don't you become a mom? And my dad's unlived life is he went to University of Istanbul Law School, and he was one of the best students at the law school. And they asked him to be an academic and stay at the school and teach. But because he did grow up without a father at those uh, years of his life, his father was, um, due to family circumstances, had left Turkey and he was um, practicing medicine in, in the U.S. And he... My dad grew up without a father, pretty much, and his uncle put him through school. So his um, he felt obligated to work in his uncle's business for a while after school and never got to teach. So that's why my unlived life is to live across cultures, traverse the world as if no borders exist, and to teach. Wow. Um, it's amazing how this next question that I've been skipping a lot fits perfectly here. Um, as a result, uh, what career path did you not go down, but always thought that you would? Mm. Yeah, I've seen you ask this question a few times. You know, in my younger years, I, I really liked um, technical um, subjects, and I thought I would be an engineer. I studied engineering. I considered becoming an architect. I thought of becoming a pilot. I thought of, um, I, in my early years of my career, I, I, and, and later years at Civic Solar, two people would vouch for that. I really enjoyed teaching as a, mm -hmm. like a product manager, but really more of a teaching focus of uh, mm -hmm. um, subjects. Um, mm -hmm. And those are all things that I didn't pursue, mainly because I kind of knew, oh, I, you can't really maximize your income doing those things. Like uh, um, <laughs> you can't really become yeah. a super wealthy person just being a pilot or just being a solo architect. Well, actually you can probably, if you're a great architect, you can make a ton of money, but um, somehow, you know, the um, technical aspects of software really resonated with me. And uh, I found myself in the software industry fresh out of college and just uh, my career evolved in, tech and software and tech first and and then uh, became more entrepreneurial um yeah. but yeah so but architect pilot those were all appealing uh, yeah. options for me lately i've been also enjoying um kind of the coaching this this mm -hmm. psycho spiritual aspects of life as well yeah, yeah exactly yeah although i do have some reservations ar around characters like uh we talked about this uh, characters like Tony Robbins or Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. or all these people who tell people mm -hmm. how to live lives. And um, because I think everybody's answer lies within themselves and they should find the answers for themselves rather than listen to others. But 
That's a separate topic. That's what makes you a good coach. I'd like to briefly touch on Yonja. I think it's a really Mm -hmm. key moment in your career, and it explains a lot about how you think about... I've learned a lot from you just listening to how you talk about Yonja. Uh, You were, I think, still a student at HBS um, when you came up with the idea for Yonja. Is that right? Or was it pre-HBS? You know, one of the early tech companies that I worked for was... um, a company called PowerSoft that got acquired by Sybase. Sybase at the time was Oracle's number one competitor, only half the size of Oracle back then. And then Oracle grew leaps and bounds and Sybase continued growing, but not as much. And Sybase had acquired PowerSoft. PowerSoft had acquired the um, the small French software company that I was working at. And this all happened in the same month. And we became part of PowerSoft. And I got to meet these high-flying tech founders of PowerSoft that were coming to work with their Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And and I remember one of them telling me that his first business was a dating site with punch cards back in the day, back in the early days of uh, technology, where people would mail in their profiles with punch cards and, and then, you know, with bubble... Uh, bubble cards and like you would mark it with your pen and then they would put all those cards into the punch card system of back then a computer system and they would match profiles and then mail back matches to these people saying you should call this person at this number who lives 20 miles away from you or whatever And, and 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 at that moment i realized the power of networks and right. and then I always kept that at the back of my mind. And it wasn't when I was at um, business school that I actually came up with the idea of, of Yonja, but it was actually after having worked at, um, after business school, I worked for uh, Siebel Systems for about three years and uh, then took a little time off and was thinking of what to do next. And right at that time, social networks were taking off. LinkedIn was out. Uh, Friendster was out. Friendster was growing leaps and bounds. And I serendipitously found myself next to a investor entrepreneur who had invested in both LinkedIn and Friendster and was doing another concept. And then I said, you know what? Of all these concepts, I think Friendster is the most efficient from a capital perspective and potential perspective. So I want to do this for Europe for all major European languages is the way I thought about it at the time. So we started a social network pretty much modeled after Friendster with the intention to capture major European markets with their own languages. We never took off in uh, those major markets like Germany and France and Spain and Italy, which we thought needed this service in their own language. But the English only UI when we were essentially beta testing the product, it really captured the attention of a lot of my Turkish um, friends in the US or Turkish American young population, grad student, college students, grad students, young professionals, Mm -hmm. and then became a thing amongst them and grew very quickly to tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of users jumped to Turkey, became uh, one of the virally grew to be one of the top uh, web properties of Turkey, ran from San Francisco in the early, early days. Of- Is it true that you had billions of page views? Yeah, we did. Yeah. In, in a single month, we would, I think our peak was about a billion and a half or close to two. This is circa what year? 
I would say our peak was uh, the year we sold the business in 2007. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 2007, by the way, that's yeah. right around the time Facebook came out of like out of colleges private or, for colleges, right? Yeah, they were just opening up. Yeah. What a, what a great time uh, to, to be able to sell the company too, because it was obvious that they, that, that the whole idea of social networks was um, gathering speed. Uh, I want to dig down a little bit here. Mm-hmm. What did you see in Friendster and how did you break that business down using your business acumen, your, mm-hmm. your, your business school mm-hmm. understanding yeah. for those who are similarly thinking how to reverse engineer success? How did you reverse engineer Friendster to create success for mm-hmm. Yonja? Yeah, when I, when, you know, when I was actually starting another Friendster, many of my uh, friends and supporters said, ah, there's not even a revenue model. What is this model? <laughs> da, 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 da. Uh, like, you know, doubters will always doubt. But what was clear to me at the time was essentially that, that story that I remember from my PowerSoft days. This Friendster is essentially technically another dating site. It had one single feature difference. And that was the fact that every single profile had a connection uh, or an opportunity to create connection with other profiles, essentially the friend request and then the accept or decline kind of op- feature feature set. And that was the single most important difference between a traditional dating site and Friendster. And that one feature improved the business model vastly because it essentially eliminated approximately 30% of the cost base of the vis-a-vis the revenues, which most, you know, back then, this is like circa 2002, 2003, online dating was an industry. Like that industry was going and going pretty strong. Match.com and its competitors were all growing 30, 40% a year. They were spending quite a bit of money in marketing, but they still had healthy 10, 20% margin. But they were spending probably 30, 40% of their revenues in, in user acquisition. What Friendster and LinkedIn and all the major social networks didn't have at the time was that expense. And the the product design made it viral and it grew Mm -hmm. super fast and with no expense. Uh, And it also created a richer experience by the fact that you not only saw a profile, whatever the user put into his or her profile, but you also saw who they are connected to in the real life. So it was a... It was a brilliant business um, design, really. Uh, and really, a lot of that kudos goes to, I think, in my mind, Jonathan Abrams, who's the founder of uh, Friendster. And then Zuck and many others um, replicated yeah. it, in, in, and in some ways, in, a, in better ways. And the Facebook team, my hat's off to them. They, they won that game, clearly, and, yeah. and uh, in a deserved fashion. And, and you know, they, they did push the envelope in certain uh certain ethical ways in my book but you know still it's they they won the game and and overall i think social networking like any technology can be really good for the world if you used if used yeah. properly is there anything else that you did that you think about um that like fundamentally impacted the ability for you to take what you saw in friendster and put it into your business how you actually cloned that as a as like an operating system for your business um, because it was so new. It wasn't like the Friendster guy was out there telling everybody how they're building the business, but you were able to reverse engineer it. Is there anything that you learned that you've used over and over, or even just used the once that helped you build Yonja and then 
um, sort of you've put into your brain that you now use as a business building principle? I mean, I observed all the products that were out there really mm -hmm. meticulously. I, I signed up to probably six or seven of them, and I experienced each one of them as a user. Since you invite, you know, like I, I mapped out essentially the uh, the page flows and the wireframes and the templates mm -hmm. and, and the entire page flow of every not every single one, but probably five or six of the major uh, competitors to Friendster. Uh, there, you know, there, there, there were, at, I don't remember all their names right now, but there were probably five or six that, um, that I uh, mapped out literally on my wall in my living room. <laughs> and I, and, and then even then, like I remember Facebook had about 40, 40 pages at the time. I diminished that to about 26. I, I figured many other features were, um, not that critical. Uh, so I brought that mm -hmm. down to a minimum viable product and, and we launched with that. And that was kind of my reverse engineering process. What did you learn through the Yonge experience that Im impacted the way you think about business building? And I'm thinking in particular about <clears throat> the power of networks? Well, at its peak, Yonja had probably six or seven million registered users, a third of which, maybe more, were um, active on the platform on a weekly basis. And I mean, I very quickly saw the power of the network effect and how um, number one player, for, in, a, in our case, we didn't really have that much of a better product. We were the first mover and that created a huge advantage to um, capture the Turkish market for, for a good while, yeah. five, six years. Um, although later we Facebook pulled the rug under our feet in a, in a, in a major way. And, and their product had some major advantages, um, primarily in the sense of uh, real user identity um, and also mm. uh, a level of... Uh, privacy that users could control. And those were like, like their two key features. But another aspect of it was the fact that they started, and it's going to sound maybe a little um, not perfectly politically correct, but they started, as did Yonja, at the top of the social pyramid. Right. And and that, um, that had an effect, I think, in... Um, you know, the fact that it started, Facebook started in Harvard and, and Yonja was started by what I will call uh, privileged uh, Turks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting educated or working in the U.S. And then thereafter spread to the um, population. People always want to obviously um, keep, keep up yeah, with the exactly. <laughs> and so those were definitely aspects that helped our growth and then ultimately helped Facebook as well. Can you explain the underlying metrics that suggest that there is a network effect happening and how you learned about and tapped into that with your business? Yeah, I learned about the term after the fact. You and I talked about this uh, term K-factor, but if uh, but it was very apparent to me in the early days of Yonja when when you when a user invites um, and, and every every new user invites X many new users ideally on a on a platform. Right. And that's the word of mouth effect, actually. Like, what product do you feel so good about that you want to share yeah. it with your best buddies or your family or whoever's around you? And if that 
the result of that invite and the resulting sign-up number is greater than 1.0, then you do have a, a, a viral uh, a viral phenomenon at your end. And if it is, you know, even 1.1 or 1.2 or 2 is great, you know, that means every new user is bringing in two more new users or, uh, you know, whatever that number is. And if it is, and that's how viruses grow too. Um, so, and if it is less than one, let's call it 0.9, it's just not going to grow on its own. Then you're going to have to spend a ton of marketing money to make it grow. And and the best products usually uh, require little marketing. You know, if your product is so far differentiated from anyone else's, then you don't really need that much marketing because uh, yeah. it sells itself. That was yeah. that was definitely an observation that I um, had running those, um, you know, running on during those days. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I was just reading the, I remember reading the Wikipedia page on K factor mm -hmm. and two examples that people wouldn't expect of K factor under one that still ended up in successor Dropbox and WhatsApp. So I'll link to. Oh, really? The WhatsApp notes, the, did not the, have a. Uh huh. So WhatsApp had a K factor of 0 0.4. How did they, <laughs> how did they. It's a, it is. Uh, so I'm, I'm leaving that, that here because I, Folks, are, I'll probably will find some more stuff that I've read on um, on K Factor and social coefficient that um, I think is important. Um, and and Karim has been a great uh, help in me understanding this. Um, but I think that as we all are building businesses that in some way leverage the internet, understanding how viral marketing works, and in particular what we do a lot—it's video and, and audio—how content can can help with virality is uh, is really helpful. So. I'll link to uh, K Factor with regards to marketing and the Wikipedia page. I just wanted to drop that in there because I think it's really interesting. There are examples of K Factor under one that succeed. They are the the, the they're not the uh, the rule, but but there. But but that terminology was new to me when I met you. And this whole idea of virality really um, is something that I think in the solar industry, like with the exception of uh, of residential lead gen marketers, like very few people understand it. And I would suggest that a lot of the lead gen folks don't understand it either. Um, they're leveraging other, uh, other types of, uh, of effect, but I'm curious, there's one funny story that you told me about how you tapped into virality that particularly began to skyrocket. Yonja, do you remember, um, uh, when, do, do you remember yeah, when Yonja really started to, <laughs> yeah, to accelerate? I mean, you know, I, I was referring to my co-founders and other people's, uh, importance in the success of or in the modest success of both my businesses. And, and Yonja, I could not have done it without my brother, who uh, acted as a part-time CTO uh, pretty much throughout the entire life of Yonja. Never really full-time worked at it, but, you know, helped him get a job at Google even. And, um, you know, he always had uh, techie jobs. And, and, and being a guy five years younger than me at the time, when I launched Yonja, I was pretty much, uh, you know, engaged and, uh, you know, living with, with my, uh, who became later my spouse, Stephanie. Um, and, uh, and, uh, my brother was a single guy and the first couple hundred people I signed up were like 80% guys and they weren't really mm -hmm. super closely tight knit. They were kind of like spread out in different geographies and they were all my friends from different parts of my life, but there was not a, 
cohesive uh, unit of gr group that could make a big effect. And when, when Yonja took off was, you know, both that year, like a month after I launched it, um, my brother and I, we both traveled to Turkey for Christmas break. And he went out pretty much every night to clubs and nightclubs and bars and basically asked every one of his single attractive female friends <laughs> to sign up on Tionja. And within days, it just made a huge difference in terms of the virality of the platform. And so, and that's just the, the nature of, uh, you know, I mean, Facebook was the same thing in the early days. It was yeah, it a was. lot of the activity was, you know, that um, sexual attraction between the boys and girls or people to each other. Yeah. And, and yeah, that definitely did drive it. Thank you for sharing that. I love watching how self-conscious you are sharing these stories of how you uh, effectively made money off of like, getting, you know, connecting people. It's almost like you had a dating yeah, site. Yeah, it was essentially um, a social dating site. Um, yeah. Although there were a lot of points of interest too. And I think what really made Facebook succeed is that like we all leveraged the the fact that there, that that dating aspect was what we all knew it was kind of like the unspoken yeah. aspect of these social networks. Mm, they they right. were positioned as a lot more than that. But in the early days, 80% of the activity was really checking out um, guys yeah. and girls. But what Facebook did really well is they, they evolved that beyond, uh, beyond that and into it areas of interest and, and groups of common uh, interests and communities and, uh, and, and many other types of content. If you look at Instagram now, it's, you know, a whole other type of platform. Mm -hmm. So in your, uh, this is all in your twenties, right? Uh, late twenties. No, actually early thirties to mid thirties. Okay. Yeah. So early to mid thirties, uh, you finally kind of get in your rhythm. You've created this thing, you sell it, um, you feel a sense of success. You've been able to take some chips off the table, press pause for a minute, think about your life. This is like early teens, right? Like late 2010 or late, uh, late aughts, early teens. And you're in California. 2007 is when, I ex when we sold majority of the business. 2009 is when I exited the business, like personally. Yeah. I tried to, mm -hmm. I tried to compete against Facebook for another two years, but it just became yeah. a, very clear that it was not going to be a fun experience. Right. Yeah. How and why did you, did it occur to you that uh, as there was a social shift, there was also an infrastructure shift afoot in the world and you needed to be a part of it? How mm -hmm. did you pick up on what was happening in the energy sector and in particular renewable energy? You know, my, my wiring growing up in an entrepreneurial family and, uh, you know, and my Harvard business school education, kind of like the common path that many people would expect is either start another tech firm after doing one or invest uh, the capital that you created uh, on a full-time basis that I think though, I think my, t my path, like if I had gone back a decade earlier, you know, when I was graduating uh, business school. And if I knew that I would have this success, this model of success, I would probably say to myself, okay, you would invest that. And that's kind of what I tried to 
do. I didn't really, after having been, uh, you know, beaten <laughs> by the Facebook team, I just didn't feel like competing against another Zach. <laughs> and I, 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 mm. I, I felt like I would probably have a, a more balanced life if I just invested. So I sat down to invest and I tried doing that for a couple of months, but it felt like, you know, and I did create a public equities portfolio during that time, but there was not really that much to do. I read a ton of investing book, books, but I did not enjoy doing that activity for longer than a couple of months and longer than an hour or two a day. Like every time I would think, okay, how can I maximize my investing? It just wouldn't feel right in my body. I would actually get yeah. a sense of discomfort. And and that was around the time when I first started kind of like meditating or pseudo meditating, sitting mm -hmm. quietly in my office by myself. Whenever I did that, I would get this message to actually use my know-how, my technology um, experience, uh, software, tech, uh, internet experience towards fields that needed it. And that was very clearly, I would get these messages internally. Like oh, oh, whenever I quieted down, these thoughts would come up. Education, healthcare, clean tech. Education, healthcare, clean tech. And, and right mm -hmm. around that time, Michael Goldberg, Goldie, my, our co-founder and the real leader behind uh, Civic Solar, he came to me with the idea of doing Civic Solar together. Ian Paler were already talking, Michael Paler, our third co-founder, and they, they wanted a another another guy in the mix. And and how'd you meet him? I had known Goldie through one of my good friends from college. Um, I I used to be on the sailing team and one of my buddies from the sailing team. And I we've done multiple vacations together and I had met Goldie um through those experiences before. And at the time, he was also working for Greenvolts, whose offices were right downtown San Francisco, very close to Yonja's offices. And we were just connecting frequently, talking about solar and, you know, the future of solar. And, and that's how I... I need to get Goldie on yeah. and we go deep on the, the civic yeah. story because he, as most people recognize, was the face of the company and... CEO led the company, um, you know, got a lot of the early. He never liked, he uh, never liked the title CEO. He always wanted the uh, president or in some of his, uh, communications, mm -hmm. he would sign his emails, account manager, actually. <laughs> he's uh, I remember he's that. a true, uh, I remember that. True, and I thought it was confusing as hell. <laughs> he was a true, uh, lead by example guy. He was, uh, the best sales guy we had at Civic Solar always and showed people how to, how to do it. Really? Yeah. Uh, Goldie. I love Goldie. Um, he, he still, to this day, by the way, lists himself as senior marketing manager at Green Tech Renewables. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like right. uh, co-founder and VP of marketing is what he says he was at, at Civic. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, and he was director of marketing for those who didn't know Green Volts. Uh, he was it swell before it was swell? Like he, mm -hmm. he's, he was a, he was a marketing guy that was trying to figure out like what's going on, what's going wrong in solar and how do we fix it? Um, and in that context, um, that's kind of, that's how you guys came together. You needed a tech guy who 
who understood it, but also could help, you know, you'd been steeped in investment. My, my suspicion, and I'll uh, mm -hmm. ask Goldie this, but my suspicion is that he saw in you a tech guy who also had some money and could probably help raise sure. around yeah. to get this idea going. And I did. I, I put in the first uh, 50K, I think it was, myself, and then um, helped raise close to another half a million, most of which um, I helped raise. And uh, yeah, and I was just another um, business mind on the table that, right? you know, did various different things. What did, yeah. for those who are unfamiliar, what did Civic set out to accomplish? Initially, we thought we could, we could create an eBay-like model where we would connect the installers and the manufacturers in an efficient way. Um, we thought, mm -hmm. initially, we thought we could do that even without um, too much hand-holding, um, mm -hmm. kind of like we could take our sweet 5% margin and create a you know, marketplace-type web platform. Um, by the way, all three of us, uh, I forgot to mention, Nicholas, my buddy from college, and Michael, they built Swell together. They were partners at Swell, and that was an internet business. Wow. And Taylor, yeah. our CTO at Civic Solar, he had built a number of uh, web-based uh, platforms and businesses himself. So we, were, all three of us were internet entrepreneurs. We all kind of understood the concepts of marketplaces, e-commerce, and so forth. So we basically brought those um, elements to, to Civic's business model. Mm -hmm. We thought it would be as simple as an um, eBay-like model, but very quickly realized that we would need to handhold uh, the installers and, and also engage the, uh, the, the manufacturers in, in, in a deep way. And, and we built a very specialized e-commerce platform that shared a ton of information that was behind the veils for a lot of those uh, mm -hmm. long-tail in installers. And, um, and back then, it was really difficult to get a hold of a salesperson at a traditional um, installer. And it was really difficult to get the, the specs and the data sheets and all of that detail. Um, and we built a, a platform that shared all that information up front. And that that got us a really ton of SEO and ton of visitors to our website and hundreds of phone calls coming into our 800 number thanks to doing that, really with minimal marketing back then. I remember being blown away with how quickly Civic started dominating SEO and how Civic clearly had an edge on competitors in educating the market and understanding how the internet worked and getting, uh, and, and then using that data, like really building the business around data and um, yeah. disaggregating And if data, I made something right? like on that point, it out of, we never hmm. paid a dime to any SEO professional or any SEO activity. Just like Energy Sage, I yeah. think I heard Vikram talk about this at Energy Sage. Um, they never optimize the contact or they never produce content with SEO in mind. And neither did we. We just did the right things and Google yeah. recognized that. And and I, I I also saw this at Yonja too. I I never, you know, did anything for any SEO, but um 
if you Googled any term related to social networking or dating or friendship or interest, like communities, Yonja would always come up on top, even in the very early days of, uh, of it in, in Google searches. And, and same thing happened at Civic Solar too. Um, and to me, that says like internet has this special magic, or maybe it's Google's magic, but it's like when you put stuff out there, it brings you yeah. good stuff back. And, and that is something that I, I remember, I, I keep in the back of my mind yeah. in every single activity that I'm doing right now. But to put a pin in the Civic Solar conversation, uh, could you just, I remember very distinctly, like as I left Trina, um, I didn't see you much in Civic anymore, but I know that you were instrumental in the exit. What can you tell me about the involvement that you personally had in Civic's growth and the exit to CED Green Tech? I know a lot of the stuff that you can't talk about, but what can you talk about in terms of what you, uh, how you participated and also what you learned from that experience that would be instrumental for others? I would say I was quite involved in Civic in the early years probably the first five, six years. And, yeah. and then as, as you know, um, I moved to San Diego, uh, around, uh, 20, uh, 15, 2014, 15 era. And, um, and mainly because civic was doing really well at the time and we, we were growing leaps and bounds. Everything was um, going well. And, um, and I had an opportunity. I had invested in a biotech venture um, run by some old friends. And, um, and I, I was really curious about the healthcare s- sector as well. And I had an opportunity to do certain projects within that uh, biotech venture. So I wanted to... Actually, I did both for a while. I, I, I was 90% of my time in, in this biotech business, but... I, I would fly up to uh, the Bay Area and spend uh, two, three days uh, at Civic uh, for a for a good two, three years, and then um, yeah. I became more involved towards closer to the exit. As Civic got bigger, its unique advantages of being a we didn't really talk about this, but one of the key advantages of Civic was the fact that it had a negative working capital type business model, which meant it. What does that mean? It, it didn't require capital. It it actually created capital as it was growing because we would get paid on day zero or day one of our um, sales. And we would pay the vendors at day 30 or 45 or 60. So we actually created financing through our sales activity, which helped us grow from pretty much zero to 60 million in revenues without even touching half of the capital that we raised in the early days of the business. And, and that negative working capital though, didn't, it couldn't scale past a certain amount. And I think that amount was 60 to 70 million at the time of the market. Um, because as we grew, um, our customers grew with us. And as they grew, they, they wanted mm-hmm. terms when they were small, they, they right. didn't, necessarily have the negotiating power to ask for terms so we could ask for cash up front. But as the customers grew, they wanted terms. And that forced us to shift our negative working capital business model to a more traditional type business model. Even though we carried much less inventory than a traditional inventory close to zero, we started giving a ton of terms and that required more capital. And and at that point, I got more involved to 
to uh, help yeah. raise capital, uh, potentially look at exit opportunities, and ultimately, we a lot of our best customers were going to we were losing them to CED <laughs> because they are the best uh, in the market. I mean, they have a brilliant and because they give terms, yeah, and they give great terms, and they are everywhere, and they have a brilliant uh, business model, a superb uh, culture, mm-hmm. and a great, great reputation. And and we had the option to uh, sell it to them, and and we did, and that was a happy ending yeah. for for the Civic story, I would say. It was, and I can say without reservation, I worked with every uh, distributor. Civic was always my favorite, not because of the business that you built, but because of the people that you hired. Like I and know the information we I'm shared, thinking, and because they were all knowledgeable, God, I'm curious. thinking of individuals yeah. like Charlie yeah. and yeah. Isidro that like. And I mean, Jose, my buddy, Jose and Scott, like a lot of my friends that worked at that organization who are genuinely amazing humans, right? And they're wicked smart and they are willing to share with anyone who will ask. And that sort of underscored the culture of the business that you built. I had a quick question for you before we turn uh, away from Civic to some other things. You had mentioned how between Yonja and Civic, you spent a lot of time thinking through and learning about and then sort of just considering, do I, am I an investor and how do I handle that part of my, uh, sort of my, now my, my life mm-hmm. and preserve capital. Is there any particular learning book or, um, or, or resource that came into your life that made you a better investor that you would recommend for others? There are two books that I mean, I've read probably dozens of investment investment books and many of them are very academic and really thick. Um, but I, I have two simple books that I, that created my approach to public equities investing at the very least. Um, and those are rule number one and the little, little, I can't remember the name now is a little book that builds wealth. Um, rule number one is a, a book by a former who used to be a river guide in uh, one of the rivers in the Grand Canyon uh, area who saved the life of a um, major mutual fund uh, manager <laughs> where the mutual fund manager shared all the secrets of the industry with him. And uh, yeah. and it's uh, Phil Town is the guy's name and it's a great book. Phil yeah. Town, yeah. And it basically simplifies the company picking process to, uh, you know, five for six key metrics and certain attributes of the business, which essentially are investing companies that build products that you like and, uh, and that are ideally founder led and that have 10% or more growth in key metrics like profits, uh, earnings per share, book value, um, and a higher than ideally 15% return on invested capital. Those are the key key metrics that he tracks, and that's a good good way to filter um, companies. And then another um, and the other book, the little book that builds wealth, argues slightly differently. Looks at the uh, investing opportunities slightly differently. Looks more through a moat and network effect type perspective lens. And says there are certain businesses. Doesn't matter who runs it, whoever, whatever monkey you put on the helm, the businesses will just do well because of the structural elements of that business. <laughs> and 
I don't want to be derogatory, yeah. but I think you can apply that to every util- many utility companies <laughs> that are currently right. running in the in the U.S., which has been one of Warren Buck- Buffett's traditionally uh, best, uh, you know, investment approaches, utilities, his mm. uh, and and Love newspapers it. because they are winner take all models. Um, utilities are and newspapers used to be, and and social networks are it's too. True in some way. So, yeah. um, you had, a, there's a term for that. You can win or take most, yeah, at least there's a yeah, term for yeah, that. Win right? or take all or win or take most. Yeah. I, I, I don't yeah. know if there's another term, but yeah, that, that oh, ends okay. up being the case for most network effects, uh, for most businesses that benefit from network effects. Yeah. Well, there, there you have it. If, uh, this is, I'm going to have to turn this into at least a multi-part episode, I believe, Karim. And I think that's a great place for us to stop. We always ask her book recommendations anyway. And um, why not leave it there for the end of part one? I would suggest that you go out right now and buy rule number one and the little book that builds wealth I have and, uh, and they have impacted my life. Um, I will link to them as I always do in the show notes. Karim, uh, we'll be back for a second part. All right, well, I, as I mentioned, we are definitely going to do this in two parts. So that's the end of part one with Karim. I hope that you are taking away a ton. I mean, right there at the end, just those two books alone are worth the price of admission. And um, I learned so much from Karim over the years, not the least of which is how to reverse engineer businesses and um, what virality means, how to leverage the very existence of the terminology around K-Factor and the metrics uh, therein to uh, accelerate growth and sort of what to look for in other businesses. It has helped improve my lens on not only creating my own business, but who I partner with and how we sort of show up in the world. So uh, I would dare say that you are getting insight from the manual, as it were. Karim knows what he's talking about. He's been a longtime friend and advisor to me. I've meditated deeply uh, with him on uh, when is the right time to bring him on the show and and uh, let you all get a chance to sort of sit by the fire with him. He has an outsized impact on uh, on Suncast and on many other businesses in ways that probably won't ever be public. And I'm grateful for you, Karim. Thank you for being on Suncast. We will have a part two. It'll very likely show up in the feed right behind this. So I hope that if you do have questions, if you do want to reach out and connect with Karim, you can easily do that. He's very uh, accessible on LinkedIn and we will link to uh, how you can find him in the show notes as we always do. Uh, As I always say, if you are interested in more of the resources, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find this and so many other bits and bobs that I found in the research and the things that I was mentioning, the Wikipedia page for some of this stuff, Robert College, etc., along with some reading around Lots of other stuff that we talked about in this episode I've linked to in the show notes over on mysuncast.com. That's also how you can get the link to uh, the other episodes that we've had and all of the rich detail of past guests, more than 600 now uh, guests in the Suncast catalog. Thank you for taking the time to invest here with us in your personal growth. It's not lost on me that you have taken time out of anything else that you could be doing to be here with us. And I just want to honor that and say I'm so so grateful. If you do feel that you could give more, uh, one of the most important ways is by leaving a rating and review. You can do that easily at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. And the other way that is super meaningful to us, especially in this time of the year, where we're trying to really figure out how can we serve you better is going to the listener survey at mysuncast.com. If you just scroll down the homepage, look for a little circle that says um, we're listening, click on that button and take the survey. I'm so grateful. We'll send you a PDF of our 600 insights 
uh, insights that we've gleaned from some of the most important books that have been recommended by guests here on the show over the last six years that we curated and made into a little PDF ebook for you. You get that if you if you complete our listener survey by going to mysuncast.com. Thank you so much for that. Thanks also to the sponsors who help make this show free to you each and every week. You've heard their uh, mid-roll and, and pre-roll advertisements uh, throughout. Uh, thank you for listening to them. If you just wanted, if you skip them, but you want to check out who our sponsors are and and what they have to offer, you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And it's also how you could find ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. And remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.